Well, good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to see you here this morning. If this is your first time here, a special welcome to our church. And for those of you who've been traveling this summer, welcome back. We know we have many families and members who are also still traveling. And uh, before we open God's word this morning, I want to take a moment to thank and recognize our church officers. You heard that we have a business meeting later this afternoon, and immediately following our business meeting, the new term starts for uh, many of our uh, officers. And so I want to take a moment just to thank those who are finishing up their term and also acknowledge those who will be starting their term. And I'm going to start with our church clerk. Our church clerk serves for one year, and our incoming church clerk is Sue Meister, and a huge thanks to Lilia Lu Fong for serving the past year. Thank you, Lilia. <laughs> Next, I'd like to acknowledge our deacons and deaconesses. These faithful men and women, they serve for two years, and we have a new uh, deacon position called the Deacon of Campus Safety, and Darren Mastin will begin his two-year term later this afternoon, and then continuing their two-year term into the second year will be our Deaconess of Care and Concern, Sue Magus. Thank you, Sue. And uh, continuing as our Deaconess of Fellowship is Janet Clark. Thank you, Janet. Continuing as our Deaconess of Finance is Yin Suzuki. Thank you, Yin. And continuing as our Deacon and Deaconess of Missions, our husband and wife team of Rob and Linda Rogas. And finally, I'd like to take a moment to uh, thank our elders, our spiritual leaders of our church. And beginning their three-year term this afternoon will be Tony Fang, Chuck Johnson, and Tom Leininger. Gentlemen, it's going to be an honor for me to serve along with you again for the next three years. They will join six others who are continuing in their three-year term. Our new elder chair is John Hamill, and our vice chair is William Shee, and Nick Gonzalez will also be continuing in his third year. And joining them is our second-year elders, Bruce Biller, Ron Clark, and Phil Meister. Can we thank God for these wonderful men? Now I want to take a moment now to thank those three elders who have completed their three-year term. It's been an absolute privilege for me to serve with these faithful, godly, humble leaders. Our elder chair and my chair I work so closely with, John Suzuki. Can we thank God for John Suzuki? And Kelvin Chin. We served so faithfully together for the last three years, and uh, we want to thank, there's Kelvin right back there. And Gilbert Zaragoza, who's currently serving downstairs in our children's ministry. Um, let's thank God for Gilbert. Three years ago was the summer of 2020. That's when these men began their term, 2020. And these men were instrumental in guiding our church and navigating our church through some of the biggest challenges. 
And so to John and Kelvin and Gilbert, uh, my deepest uh, gratitude to you three gentlemen. It's been an honor to serve alongside you, and I know that God's going to continue to use you for his glory. Would you bow with me? We want to go before the Lord and pray and ask him to teach us to be more like Jesus. So, Father, we do come to you in prayer. And as we open your word, Father, may you transform our hearts so that our hearts and lives would look more like the heart of Jesus and the life of Jesus. Father, humble our hearts right now. Help us to be open to you. Help us to submit to your spirit. Do a mighty, supernatural work amongst us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of this morning's message is Jesus, the perfect example of humility. Jesus, the perfect example of humility. And we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And we'll open up to that passage in just a minute. But I want to say that back in the year 2000, my son Andrew was born. And so he's now 23 years ago. That's 23 years ago that he was born. And when he was born, I decided to take my camera to the hospital because I wanted to document his birth. I wanted to document all that took place before the delivery and then after the delivery. I wanted to take pictures of all of Andrew's loved ones who would come and hold cute little Andrew. And so I took my big camera to the hospital and I took picture after picture after picture. I could not take enough pictures because, well, you know, Andrew was so cute. And so I took so many pictures and I went through so many rolls of film. Yes, back then I was using a film camera. And I took all these rolls of film. A few days after we got home from the hospital, I took all these rolls of film to my local professional photo lab because I wanted the best possible prints. I dropped off the rolls and then I anxiously waited for the phone call. Tim, your photos are ready. So I finally drove down there, picked up all these envelopes of pictures, and I opened up the first envelope, and I looked at dismay. I was expecting to see one beautiful picture after another after another, and all I saw was a dark picture, a blurry picture. It was nothing like I had envisioned as I looked through the viewfinder of my big camera. I thought, how could this be? I have a big camera. There's a big lens. It looks professional. So, I did what any reasonable person would do. I blamed the photo lab. <laughs> you ruined my pictures. No, they didn't. I just didn't know the first thing about taking pictures. So began my love of photography in 2000, June 15. And you could say that my love of photography was born out of necessity more than anything else. Fast forward two years later to when Amanda was born in 2002. And between those two births, I spent many hours 
just reading about photography. I read every book I could get my hands on. I read every article. I subscribed to a magazine. I spent hours at the Barnes and Nobles just reading about photography. I learned so much in those two years. I, I just gained so much knowledge and understanding. So, two years later, when Amanda was born, I took my camera with the big lens to the hospital, took as many photos as I could, dropped off the rolls of film to the local lab, and then eagerly waited for the phone call. I went and picked up those envelopes. I opened up the first one, and I saw a beautiful photo. The lighting was beautiful. The composition was beautiful. And of course, the subject was beautiful, and she still is beautiful. You know, when Amanda was born in 2002, that was well before the days of social media. Back then, we had no such thing in 2002. And so, I created my own website. I created my own website, and I would post pictures of my kids on that website, and I'd caption each photo. You might say that that was like a blog before there was such a thing as a blog. And so, every so often, I'd take photos, and then I'd post them on this created website, and then over time, my friends, they got word of the website, so they'd go and visit the website, and soon, I started getting emails and phone calls, hey, Tim, can you take pictures at my kid's birthday party? Can you come over and take my family's picture? And so, I started to learn more and more about photography, and I started to enjoy taking pictures. And then eventually, God opened the door for me to start a photography business as a portrait photographer, a wedding photographer, a corporate uh, event photographer. And in the early days, I would take Andrew with me because I didn't have a paid assistant. So he was my uh, non-paid assistant. And he was 9 or 10 years old. And so I would take him to these uh, family portrait sessions. I would often take families to the park or to the beach or to some nice, cool urban setting. And Andrew would accompany me because he would be my diffuser holder or my reflector holder or he would hold the umbrella while I would take photos. And it was incredible because um, I got to spend time with Andrew on these photo shoots. And he got so skilled by being my assistant that whenever we went on vacation as a family, I would just hand Andrew my big camera with a big lens. And here he was like a 10-year-old, and he, he had the pose, and he would hold the camera steady with his elbows in at his sides to make sure it's sturdy. And he would take some of the most brilliant photos of our vacations, and he would always apply the rule of thirds compositionally. And so he was my little photographer. Then eventually, uh, I, I loved photography so much that God opened doors for me to teach photography workshops. So I would teach a room full of people who were eager to learn about photography and their cameras. We talk about apertures and shutter speeds and the rule of thirds. And so it was a lot of fun during that season of teaching photography. And as I think back to those times, if I were to teach a photography class today, it would be very different. Here's how it would be. Everybody would show up to the class, not with their big camera bags and their big lenses and their big external lights. They would just show up with their phones. And they say, here, show me. 
And what they really want is, show me how to take the best selfie. <laughs> and then show me how to put it through the best filter. Because I want to look good. Let's face it. Our phones have completely changed how we take pictures today. Like my big camera, it stays in my closet pretty much 24-7. And I take 99.9% .9 of my pictures with my phone. You know, once upon a time, the lens on our camera was the thing that we used to see the world around us. Now, it's the lens through which our world sees us. Right? Because we're often taking pictures of ourselves. So, our phones have revealed something that's always been there about ourselves, and that's this. We are truly the center of our own world, at least in our own eyes. Our phones have revealed that. We are truly the center of our own universe in our own eyes. You know, on the news lately, here's what I've been watching. I've been hearing about stories of uh, musical artists, singers in concert, being hit by objects thrown by their fans. And most of these objects are phones thrown by the fans. Now you might think, why would a fan throw a phone at his or her favorite singer? The reason is this. The fan is hoping that the singer will catch the phone and then take a selfie with the owner of the phone in the background. The problem is, it's dark in a concert hall. And these singers are often getting hit in the face with these phones and coming away with injuries and bruises and black eyes. Think about it. Our phones, they're not bad. Okay, our phones are not good or bad. They just simply reveal to us something about ourselves. And now more than ever, they reveal to us that we really feel that we are the center of the universe, that the world revolves around us. That's why we often have FOMO, right, fear of missing out, whenever we see others having fun on social media. We look at pictures of others having fun, and we often think to ourselves, how come I wasn't invited to that? We see pictures of others succeeding or their kids succeeding. And we start to feel a bit envious and jealous and maybe even resentful at their success. And so our phones, again, they're not good or bad. They just reveal to us something about our nature. And that's that deep down inside, human beings, we think that we are the center of the universe and that everything revolves around us. Of course, we know this, that preoccupation with self is nothing new. And today's passage will reveal that to us. It's amazing how today's passage is so applicable for our time in the world today in the 21st century. And so I invite you to turn to chapter 2 of Philippians. And I'll start in verses 1 through 4. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says this, Therefore, if any of you 
have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in the Spirit and of, my, of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking out to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. The reason why Paul wrote this exhortation is the very fact that we as human beings, we're good at looking out for our own interests. Right? No one likes to be taken advantage of. No one likes to be treated poorly. We always like taking our own side in any argument. Here's the background. When Paul wrote this letter, he wrote it again as a thank you letter, but also as an opportunity to encourage and exhort those in the Philippian church. You see, a man by the name of Epaphroditus was sent by the church to visit Paul in prison, and Epaphroditus brought a monetary gift from the church. You see, the Philippian church, they loved Paul. They loved their partner in the gospel, and they wanted to support him in his struggles, so they sent a, a big, generous monetary gift with Epaphroditus. But when Epaphroditus arrived, he also brought with him a bit of bad news. And the bad news was this. There was a growing conflict, specifically between two members in the church of Philippi. And this conflict started to spread throughout the church, and it began to threaten the unity of the church. Now, we don't know why these two individuals were in conflict. We do know this much, though. Where there are people, there's bound to be conflict. Where there are people, there's bound to be conflict. We see it in schools. There's conflict in schools. We see it in the workplace. You remember the television show, The Office? It's no wonder why that show was so popular. People could relate to it, right? Every episode was about some conflict. And by the way, if you ever want to learn how not to handle a conflict, that's the show for you. Conflicts happen in the workplace. No matter how good a workplace is, conflict is bound to happen because wherever there are people, there's bound to be conflict. It happens in schools, and yes, it even happens in the church. We don't know why these two members of the church were in conflict. It could have been any number of reasons, but we know this much. Pride was a factor. And whenever there's pride, you could be sure to find a spirit of entitlement. You see, those two, those two words, they often go hand in hand. Now, what is entitlement? Entitlement is this belief that we deserve to be given something. I'm entitled to that. So entitlement is this belief that we deserve to be given something. Pride is, well, it's an overinflated opinion of oneself. And so here's the connection between pride and entitlement. 
the more highly we think of ourselves, the more we feel we're entitled to something. That's the connection between pride and entitlement. The more highly I think of myself, the more I feel, well, I'm entitled to something. So whatever was happening between these two members, there was pride and a feeling of entitlement. And I imagine feelings were hurt. I imagine they got upset at each other. And I imagine there was a growing division within the church. There are many reasons why members of the family of God turn on each other. But here's the good news. Here's the solution. And Paul offers the solution for the Philippian church, and that same solution is offered to us today, and that's this. Value others above ourselves in all humility. That is a solution to conflict. Value others above ourselves in all humility. Do you know what the number one tool in our enemy's toolbox is? And our enemy is who? Satan. The number one tool in his toolbox is pride. It is the number one tool. In my younger years of ministry, I often preached about how a sense of ownership is so important in ministry. And we often hear that to this day, how ownership is important. And we use ownership to encourage people to get involved, make this ministry your own. And so back then, I used to teach a lot about how it's important to have a sense of ownership. And I believed it, and I meant it. And whenever we talk about ownership within the church, I know that there are good intentions. Over the years, though, as I thought more and more about that concept, I've come to realize the more biblical approach to ministry is not ownership, it's stewardship. You see, because none of us owns this joint, we are stewards. You know, I am our lead pastor, but there will come a season where I will not be our lead pastor. Sometime in the future, God willing, many, many years later, someone else will be our lead pastor. You, as congregation members, you are stewards. I am a steward. For this season, we are stewards. We don't own this place. God is the owner. We are the steward. You know, one author says this. Stewardship invites humble interactions with others. While ownership invites pride and a desire to take away the agency of others. I'll say that again. Stewardship invites humble interactions with others, while ownership invites pride and a desire to take away the agency of others. If our attitude is, this is mine, I built it, 
I made it. It was my idea. Here's what happens. The minute someone else comes along and changes it, our sense of ownership is threatened. You see why stewardship is the biblical approach to ministry. This is not mine. This is not yours. We are but stewards of God's ministry. And going back to the Church of Philippi, I imagine these two faithful church members, they probably had a sense of, well, hey, this is mine. This is mine. And that conflict grew and grew. That's why God calls us to stewardship, not ownership. Stewardship invites humble interactions. It positions us to value others as more important than ourselves. That's the solution. And then Paul gives us an example of humility, but not just any example. He gives us the perfect example. Look at verses 5 through 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, yes, even death, on a cross. There's so much rich, deep Christology in this passage alone. And by Christology, I mean the study of Christ. If anybody, and I mean if anybody was entitled, it was Jesus. But he chose not to take advantage of his entitlement. Instead, he came to us a man. There's a theological term for that. The incarnation. God became man embodied in the flesh. And at the point of the incarnation, a supernatural occurrence took place. And we see another theological expression. You'll see it on the screen. It's the hypostatic union. This is a very important term, so I want you to see it, and I want you to get this ingrained into your mind. The hypostatic union. And that is the joining of the divine and human in one, in the one person of Jesus. That's the hypostatic union, the joining of the divine and the human in the one person of Jesus. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. He is not 50% God and 50% man. This is an important, this is a critical theological understanding. Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. And it's just as important to know that he will continue to be so for all eternity to come. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose bodily, physically. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he rose and ascended bodily and physically. He seated at the throne physically bodily, in his glorified body. And when he returns to earth, he will come physically and bodily. So he is to this day and will be forever 100% God, 100% man. 
And when we think about the dual nature of Jesus, there were times on earth when he operated within the limitations of his humanity. Remember, he emptied himself. He did not take advantage of his deity. And so when he walked the earth, he grew tired, he grew hungry, he grew thirsty, and he did not use his supernatural powers for his own gain. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a superpower and we could use it for whatever, right? What would be your superpower, right? Think about that. What would be your superpower, right? Oh, I don't like to sit in traffic. I think I'll make my car turn into an airplane for a few minutes and bypass all the traffic. That'd be wonderful, right, if that would happen, if that could ever happen. Or how about this, if this could ever happen? I don't want to write my 10-page paper for class. I'm going to ask my computer to do it for me. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if our computer could write our papers for us and whip it out in 30 seconds? Wouldn't that be wonderful? If you didn't catch that joke already, just come see me afterward and I'll tell you all about the world of AI. If we had superpowers, we would misuse them. That's why I'm glad we don't have superpowers. When it came to himself and his well-being, Jesus operated within the limits of his own humanity. At other times, he operated in the power of his deity. He fed the thousands by turning five loaves of bread, two fish, into a complete meal. Not for his own gain, but for the sake of others. Church, when Jesus came to earth, he let go of the privileges that were his. We often hear about rags to riches stories, people who have nothing, they make it big in life. His was a riches to rags story. But even in his death, Jesus could have died a valiant death, death of a hero, right? That would have been nice. He could have died in battle. Instead, he died the most humiliating kind of death. He died of a criminal's execution. You know, just before he was arrested, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he actually pleaded with the Father. He begged the Father. Father, if it is possible... Would you let this cup pass from me? But not my will. Your will be done. In other words, Jesus pleaded with the Father if there was any way that he could take away the pain of the cross. Please don't think for a moment that Jesus wanted to go to the cross. In all his humanity, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus agonized over what was about to come. Have you ever asked yourself, how much agony must Jesus have been in for him to plead with the Father? And yet time and time again, Jesus submitted his will to the Father's will. He sacrificed his rights. He gave up his rights. 
Now, I know that here at our church, you hear me oftentimes talk about the subject of rights. And I want you to know the reason why I talk so much about the subject of rights is because the Bible talks so much about the subject of rights. It talks a lot about our rights. And in every case that the Bible talks about our rights, it calls us to give up our rights. In every single case, give up our rights. I don't want us to be like some in the faith who have a very different tone, a tone of demanding, a tone of pushing back, a tone of fighting back. As followers of Jesus Christ, I think it's important for us to look in the mirror at times and ask ourselves difficult questions. Questions like, am I driven by the pursuit of power and control? Am I preoccupied with holding on to my rights? One of the most sobering comments I've ever heard on a podcast to date was this following statement. There was an interview between the host and a guest. And as I was listening to this podcast, this one statement just stopped me in my tracks. And this person, when asked a question, said, I wish more Christians looked like Jesus. I want to look more like Jesus. And so church, I want to share with you some practical ways to look more like Jesus this week. I want to make this as practical as possible. So this week, when someone says a mean or insensitive word to you, demonstrate the humility of Jesus and forgive that person in your heart. This week, when a loved one or a friend or a coworker or even a stranger makes life difficult for you, and it will happen, okay? It's a guarantee. Someone is going to make your life difficult this week. You've heard it right here. It will happen. In fact, I want you to email me. Oh, yeah, you were right, Tim. <laughs> and tell me about your story, okay? Just leave the name out. When someone, a loved one, a friend, a coworker, or even a stranger makes your life difficult this week, demonstrate the humility of Jesus and exercise patience and compassion. This week, when we have every opportunity and every reason to get back at someone, to even the score, or even to just explain ourselves and defend ourselves, demonstrate the humility of Jesus and die to self. This week, when you feel that you have to justify or defend yourself, die to self. And for you parents who are raising kids, especially young kids, I have a special message of exhortation for you today. For all you parents who are raising kids, 
I know that parents often like to say to their kids, follow your heart, follow your dreams. And I know that we mean well when we say that to our kids. We want them to succeed. We want the best for them. I mean, what parent doesn't want that? And yes, that sounds good. Follow your dreams. Follow your heart. But this week, my encouragement to you is this. Instead of those words, replace them with son, daughter. Seek God's heart. Follow his will. And that all begins with dying to self. Yes, encourage your kids to explore their gifts from the Lord and encourage them to use them for his glory, not for selfish gain. You know, in a world that says, be true to yourself, the Bible says, die to self. Now, that does not mean that we are to hate ourselves. Here's what it means. Here's what it means to die to self. Okay, it does not mean to hate ourselves. To die to self means this. That we accept God's love for us and know that we have infinite worth because God sent his only son on the cross to die on the cross for our sins. And because we have infinite worth, we can love and value others above ourselves. That's what it means to die to self. To know, first of all, that we have infinite worth because God sent his son to die for us. And because he died for us, we now have the ability to love and value others above ourselves. I want to close with the final words in this passage, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the end of the story, and that is a good ending. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, Jesus obeyed the Father. He died a painful and shameful death on the cross for our sins. And that's why he is the perfect example of humility. And as followers of Christ, we are called to follow his example. Now, I leave you with this. Will we always do it perfectly? No. But that's why he offers us salvation and forgiveness for all the times that we're not perfect. And my prayer for us this week is that we will look more like Jesus, that we will live more like Jesus, that we will love more like Jesus than ever 
before. Would you bow with me? God, help me to to look more like Jesus this week. When my patience is tried, when an insensitive word comes my way, when I feel like I have to defend myself, help me to be more like Jesus. Thank you for this perfect example of humility. And I know we're not perfect, but his perfect love has covered us. And because of his perfect love, we now have the ability to love and value others above ourselves. That's my prayer for myself, for our dear church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.